Hello everyone, just to warn you, this week's episode was recorded over Zoom, so the sound quality isn't as great as usual, especially regarding my voice, as my mic doesn't agree with Zoom. However, luckily, people other than myself with better microphones do most of the talking this week, including our fascinating guest, Danny Robbins. Enjoy. starts. Listeners, welcome. If this is your first time listening to the show, and if you've heard us before, welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us. This show talks about horror, horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are. Our discussions aim to be fun, intelligent, and hopefully useful if your interest in horror texts comes from a creative or academic perspective. But be warned, we do tend to swear occasionally, and if it's anything less offensive than the C word, it won't get bleeped. So we are probably not safe for any work environment you may possibly be in at the moment. In this episode, we're going to be talking on Zoom to Danny Robbins, the writer and host of the brilliant BBC podcast, The Battersea Poltergeist. Um, I'm T.D. Velasquez in Greater Manchester, as always. You can call me Dan. I am joined with great pleasure by... Stella Gaynor in Manchester, where it's raining, just for a weather update there. Uh, It's also (laughs) raining where I am. I'm also joined by... Kirsty Warrow in Shropshire, where it has been raining, but seems to have stopped. (laughs) Uh, We'll also be joined in a bit by Ian Winterton, who is in Cheshire, but whether or not it's raining there, I can't say. Um, and also, you'll hear from uh, Howard Whittock, also in Shropshire. Um, so, but not the same part of Shropshire as Kirsty's in. So, again, we don't really know the weather. And anyway, his bit was recorded several weeks ago. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter. Um, this has just been like the most British of openings. <laughs> yes. So, um, listeners, basically, all the content of the episode you're about to listen has already been recorded. Um, and we're just recording the introduction last thing that's just the way it's worked out a bit weird but there it is and that's why uh, in the main chat with Danny uh, Ian will be present to join the three of us here but he's not here right now because he's had to run off to pick his kids up from school um, this is the bit of the podcast where we normally just talk about news in horror or in life before we go on to the main topic uh, what have we got life wise and horror wise folks I've got I, I, oh, no. <laughs> no, Stella, you go first. I haven't got anything. I was just telling you, I've got. Oh, okay. I've been working and <clears> sleeping, <throat> and with a little bit of drinking, and that's it. Awesome. That surviving. Sounds, sounds oh, yeah. better than surviving, actually. 
So yeah. how about you, Kirsten? <laughs> no, so I am, uh, I, I, yeah, um, I've written two chapters for a book. Like, I don't think I'd necessarily either of them or both of them or one of them might be included in the book. But um, I had the notification that they wanted me to kind of write some stuff back in July. Um, and uh, the deadline for both chapters um, is the end of this month. And I have sent the second one off today. Um, yeah, so one, one is on uh, The Witcher and the other one is on um, uh, gynoids um, in uh, Ex Machina um and and westworld um i didn't even know at the beginning of this thing that gynoid was even a word so i didn't know it was a word until right now so is, uh, is that I a know. male android <laughs> yes <laughs> so uh yeah so um yeah that's all done and that's good and oh there's a child <laughs> <laughs> so, i think so, yes. ian has just returned from school yeah. on, on on the zoom screen yeah but, uh, i'll probably cut that out yes so that, um, yes, so that, that's been good. Um, and the other thing is, not as a recommendation, but um, I um, I came across an article about um, asking the question of is uh, Mark Z. Danielewski's um, book House of Leaves? Leaves is it the scariest book ever? To which my answer is yes. It, of course, it bloody is. Um, it but, might well be. Well, yes, yeah. but I uh, well, it, I I don't have time to reread the book, although I would love to. However. Um, I have now discovered a whole rich theme of YouTube video essays and analyses of the book. So I'm going to revisit it via the medium of other people's um, kind of literary uh, analyses on YouTube. So I'm very cool. happy about that. Uh, Stella, are you familiar with this book? Uh, I think most of our uni friends read it. It, it was definitely a craze at the time. Um, I read it, it shortly after uni. Yeah, so I've heard of it, but... The full title, I think, is Mark Z. Danielowski's House of Leaves by Zampano, because it's written in the person of this eccentric uh, individual well, who's... Mm. Well, that's right, isn't <laughs> well, it? The... No, because there's, there's Johnny, it's, it's oh, Johnny yeah. Truant, and then Zampano, and then... Oh, sorry, the, it's by... Oh, is it by Zampano as told to Johnny Truant? I'm remembering yes. what's yeah, on yeah, the title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, it's... Um, the, in within the fiction of it, it's uh, essentially a haunted house story, but it's mm -hmm. told through these multiple narrators um, who, who come upon this knowledge in different ways. And the actual haunted house story is very formally um, disturbing in a David Lynch kind of way. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not your traditional kind of apparition-based haunting, and uh, it messes with your head. Um, it's, a, um, it's an impossible right. object the whole thing is an mm. impossible object in many ways and it's a kind of yeah kind of postmodern horror um where it's one of those what the, the first video that came across was really about the idea that it's one of those books where you can't you you can't do it on audiobook and you can't do it on kindle it has to be you have to read it physically because of yeah. the way that the text is laid out and uh, right yeah it is absolutely the scariest book i've ever read and on the like the inside cover like the on the on the first page, it just says uh, has one sentence. Sentence it just says, "This is not for you," <laughs> <laughs> which is perfect. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's oh, that great. sounds right. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, it's a very big book, but because of the weird things it does with typefaces and stuff throughout it, probably doesn't take as long to read as it looks like it will. But it is like mm -hmm. literally the size of a telephone directory. Um, 
Well, I've written yeah, it I have a, a black, yeah, I have a black and white version and there's a coloured version that you can get a hard copy. Um, and I'm, I'm very much now, even though I don't have time to reread it, um, I'm very much considering trying to get hold of the, you know, the hard copy with the colour print and... Christmas present. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a recommendation. Um, my news this week um, is, is just that I, I think last week I hinted that I was going to get possibly going to get vaccinated and uh, I have had my first vaccination. Um, so Yay, that, that well felt then. like a, a milestone. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and the better news is that my mum had her second vaccination. So she's had the full dose now and she got away with having no side effects whatsoever. I had all of them, but um, they didn't last very long. So we're getting to the point where we're going to move on to the main topic of the episode. Just to let the listeners know, you're going to hear the main body of the episode. Then a little bit later, we'll have Howard in his traditional bag of death segment. And then the four of us, um, Ian, Kirsty, Stella, myself, will re reappear at the end to do our usual recommendations. So listeners, we've just been joined by Ian, who's obviously got back from his school run. So hello, Ian. Um, we're... What's the weather like where you are, by the way? This is very important. Pissing it down. Hey. <laughs> so, oh, good. Okay, some suspense resolved. So now is the point where we're going to talk about the Battersea podcast. I thought before we move on to actually listening to the interview with Danny, which we just recorded, it might be nice to talk a little bit about what this show is for any listeners who've not heard it or heard of it. Um, so, Kirsty and Ian, you been recommending it for weeks and um, i think stella and i have now listened to it and we've now all heard the entire series which is eight episodes available on bbc sounds and all the usual podcast places there is going to be a ninth episode coming out um shortly but basically the, the eight episodes which are currently out there tell the full story it's just the ninth episode is going to give a little extra detail I think we thought maybe the interview with Danny was going to be more kind of focused on, on the series and the kind of technicalities of it, but it ended up being very philosophical. So therefore, let's just talk a little bit about the, the Battersea podcast uh, right now. It's a fascinating piece of um, drama documentary, essentially, um, a form which I think works really well in podcasts. You get so many kind of true crime podcasts using dramatic uh, reenactments and things, and, it, uh, and I think it works much better than it does visually when you do that. Um, and it's basically based on a case that happened in London in 1956. I know that right now, in your head, you're taking a position. You believe in ghosts or you think they're a load of rubbish. But this story is so strange and so unsettling, it just might change your mind. This is the Battersea Poltergeist. Real fear, it's like a disease. It eats away at you till you can't walk or talk or even think. That's why I'm here, Shirley. To find out what is going on and make it stop. No, Chib, not it. Him. Chibbert will end up devoting his life to this case, but the mystery of what terrorised Shirley and her family will never be solved until now. I mean, it's a huge, huge amount of phenomena. If that's genuine, that blows anything out of the water from some of the other poltergeist cases that are held up to be the best. 
Can an exorcism be dangerous? Very. Even myself, I've got a case where a, a young lady sat on fire in front of me, actually burst into flames. You saw heavy pots and pans fly through the air in your room. Yes. We were all really scared out of our wits. I thought this is going to be the end. We're all going to die. Donald, move the chair. Please. Danny Robbins has unearthed uh, details of the story that happened then. He's tracked down the one living witness um, and interviewed her, and he's mounted dramatic reconstructions of the events, starring uh, the amazing Daphne Keane as uh, young Shirley, uh, who is the witness, and also starring Toby Jones. He's got two of my favourite actors in <laughs> right now, and I feel like I've got locked down to thank for that, that they were both available at the right time. It's, it's, it's a really great piece of storytelling, I think, in that the kind of fictional uh, recreation of events in 56 and the modern-day narrative are kind of paralleled so that as we learn... Everything we, we learn about the case, we kind of learn it as the people involved at the time would have learned it, including the experts getting to comment on it. And that's the most interesting thing about it. Well, and, and actually a question I would have had for Danny, but I didn't ask because I thought it was a lot duller than what he was actually saying, um, because we discussed all kinds of things about spiritualism and, and, and social kind of attitudes denoted by ghosts. But I thought it was really interesting that even in within the um, the narrative of the series, it was as if the experts and the commentators that Danny was speaking to had only heard as much of the story as we had the listeners. So it, it kind of very much the whole thing was kind of a linear exercise in learning and reacting to each new plot development. And I thought that was kind of great. Um, is there anything any of you would like to say about the show before we move on to hear from Danny? Well, I think yeah, I mean, we touched on this with Danny, but just the fact that it's happening now, it's not, you know, he, he sort of said, oh, some people wanted to just binge all the episodes, and I think they probably shut up as soon as they realised how it was going to unfold. Because I remember listening to episode one going, what, where's the rest of the episodes? <laughs> Got to wait. But then you realise it's happening it might have happened in 1956 and for the 14 years onwards, but the podcast is happening now. Mm. So in a way, I'd say go and listen to it, but more than that, um, go and listen to his next one as it's happening because yeah. it will never refreshing, be quite, isn't it? It'll never be quite the same as listening to them going out. Mm. Listening to them going mm. out and having to wait a week and then there being bonus episodes because they've got stuff to talk about so there's like you know little the little the little sort of case case notes episodes weren't planned they just kind of feel they kind of organically come out of the fact that it's it's not it's not it's not a live event but it's it's being put together in real time you know like mm -hmm. he like he said in the interview that the last episode was finished i think at 7 p.m. the day before broadcast mm -hmm. and things like that so it's it's very it's about something that it's about history, but it's also very current. And I guess it's got true crime podcasts. They've got that in common with it. 
because they actually affect, you know, they affect some true crime podcast affected the fate of people who are under suspicion and things like that, didn't they? Well, he talks about serials specifically in that, didn't it? Which I have never listened to. Which is amazing, so you should. (laughs) Yeah, the first series. I bet bet you in the same way, I bet it's not the same as hearing about it unfolding. Listening to it all in the... Or you know, it's all. No, I think with serials, you, you you yeah, you could do that. It has a slightly different. Yeah. The the, the effects of that first series of serial were, were kind of after the fact, I think. Mm. Yeah, and then they followed it up on later yeah, yeah. series. Didn't yeah, they? yeah. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's been other ones where they've reopened cases. The police have reopened cases, and mm. because the podcast people have unearthed new new evidence and things and. You know, but 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 this is this is like a sort of paranormal version of that. But the main takeaway, as we get in the thing, is Danny's just a really lovely man, and he, as he did with Haunted, he creates this safe space where he doesn't condemn you for believing or not believing, because he's kind of scratching his head like the rest of us, mm. going, "Hmm, probably isn't true, but oh my god, I'm a bit scared because yeah. <laughs> maybe it is." Yeah. yeah it's but, not um it's not the kind of format that i would usually go for i would either i just i just i'm not really a radio drama person really uh, i like sort of podcasts um, where people are just talking or if i'm going <laughs> to engage a drama it will be on the telly um i did listen to more radio dramas when i had to teach radio cultures at uni last year so i had to learn <laughs> um but it's not usually the kind of thing that i would seek out i don't think it's only it, it's topic material and you know you guys mm. suggesting it that um it's like, yeah i'll give that a go <clears throat> yeah it's not usually the wouldn't be usually the top of my list of things to listen to but i did enjoy the balance of the drama and the documentary investigative side of it i think that's if if you know there are people that are fancying it but maybe don't like radio dramas or think they don't like radio plays type thing, then it does do a nice balance of, of mm. the two while still maintaining, having enough spookiness to sort of hold each side of it as well. So yeah, just really yeah. well balanced and didn't lean too much into either one. So it was, it felt, cause I listened to it all in one go, essentially mm. over two days. Um, and it nips along at a decent enough pace as well that I wasn't bored at any point. And I really, yeah, I really liked those those case files. We need to, you know, we need extra space to talk about this because there's mm. so many questions pouring, and I thought that was really, really interesting. And I'm, I am now kicking myself that I didn't listen to it as it was coming out. Mm. That would have been a, an extra layer of yeah, especially interest. especially if you've been listening to it and then they had the tweet alongs. Yeah, were, yeah, you know, they were fun to dip into because he just yeah talk about added content. Mm-hmm. You know, as he as he you know as he mentions. The length some people have gone through in their own sort of amateur sleuthing, or just slightly obsessed, and and when you follow it on Twitter, I mean, it'll be all there now. If you go and look for the hashtags, um, that'll be under Danny's Danny's uh, Danny's profile. Um, but yeah, there's just so many different things, and people have really got into the sort of all the different, you know, lifted up all the stones and all the rocks and had a look under. Um, Kirsty, is there anything you'd like to say about the series yes. before we go to that? 
So I became aware of it, I think, um, either early January. Yeah, early January, I think, because, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, Alice Slow <laughs> tweeted about it. Um, so I thought, okay, that's one I'm going gonna, gonna, to um, have to listen to. Um, and then I think I was listening to other stuff. Um, and then, so I was kind of, you know, knew that it was there waiting for me. And I think I sort of hit it probably beginning of February. So there were a couple of episodes out already. Um, and I honestly, other than the fact that she tweeted about it, I didn't really know anything about it other than that she was in it. So I kind of, I came to it not really knowing, I hadn't listened to Haunted um, mm. and I, so I didn't really know what it was. Um, but I'm so used to my own podcast listening. I love true crime stuff. I love, you know, serial and that kind of stuff. But I also love the kind of deep fiction podcasts that have, you know, fused um kind of horror with that kind of um found uh you know kind of serial sort of format um stuff like Tannis and Limetown uh, to you know really great effect um and so to begin with that's what I thought I was listening to <laughs> I thought that this was a you know it's a kind of uh uh, a fictionalised account of a case uh, with some docudrama because that's part of the conventions of, of you know, of um, found footagey stuff anyway, and that we're using documentary techniques. Um, and it wasn't until Danny introduces Shirley into yeah. the mix, I went, suddenly went, gosh, she sounds really real. Whoever they've got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. Great actress. That was so authentic. And that was the moment when we actually go, what I became aware of is how my own listening experience, I've been much like Stella, I suppose, kind of influenced how I was responding to it and my own kind of gothic audio space. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, so then I thought, okay, I need to look into it. And then I realised it was this, you know, this kind of, this, you know, this fairly notable case, but that it hadn't really been you know, kind of well documented for a range of reasons. And on a, it, I, I, was, I was astonished really that it had, you know, had been so significant at the time, but yet yeah, had sort of not, yeah, not registered culturally yeah. in terms of- It's, it's, yeah, it's funny because the Baffle Gab thing, that's why it popped up onto my radar because we always follow Baffle Gab's drama and that to me, their drama. And I remember reading about it and going, well, that sounds like they've just ripped off the Enfield Haunting. That's a bit weird. And then I saw yeah. Danny Robbins's name. I went, oh, that's a bit different. And then, so, and then so I went into it knowing it was this weird mix. But yeah, I had the same, I had the same sort of what? <laughs> yeah, and I think the the, the the deep fiction podcast, like I mean, I think particularly Tannis, but I know the Lovecraft, you know, they do the same thing, which is where they, yeah. you know, they kind of deliberately reference things that exist in the real world in order to yeah. kind of plug it in and increase the authenticity. So you know, it kind of none of that seemed like it was sort of out of place at all even when I was like you know I think in the first episode it was like you know it's all oh, this is like Enfield and then they mentioned Enfield and then I, I still didn't question it because you know that's what those kind of podcasts do oh. so it was it was uh I think a delight to sort of feel like I'd you know sort of second a little bit second guess myself in terms of what I was listening to and then just that kind of becoming actually more engaged with it and then 
because at that point I'd caught up with you know the kind of release of episodes just that again yeah waiting waiting for Thursday waiting for you know I go out and do morning walks at the moment and that's my podcast listening time so kind of you know Friday mornings that was right that's you know that's the Battersea slots. Okay so I think at this point it's a good moment to move over to the interview with Danny and listen to this uh, fascinating man talk about this fascinating story. Listeners after the interview with Danny you'll hear me and Howard talk about the bag of death and then at the end we'll all be back doing our our recommendations by the way it for any listeners who've still not listened to the Battersea Poltergeist we're going to avoid talking in a spoilery way for the first half hour and then there's a warning that we we are going into spoilers but halfway through the interview the point where we're going to start going into spoilery details um and at, at that point it's on your own head if you don't go away and listen to the show first or you listen to us um, all right enjoy There are many interesting and unusual podcasts around the area of the supernatural, but there are few as fascinating or remarkable as the Battersea Poltergeist. And today we are privileged to be joined by that podcast's writer and presenter, Danny Robbins. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. I'm talking to you live and direct from the shed right now. <laughs> from the actual shed. <laughs> the actual real shed. shed, which does exist. It wasn't just a fictional construct. It really is where my wife banishes me down to the bottom of the garden and <laughs> won't let me bring the spooky things into the house. It's, it's a kind of pimped up shed, I have to be honest. It's not, I think some people imagined I was literally in a, a tiny potting shed with a microphone sort of stuck right into my nose but um it, it's somewhere a between of, a shed and david cameron's yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> um it, it's certainly not cameronian i don't think but it's it's um it's, yeah, it's a nice little kind of garden office if you like oh. it's at the bottom of my garden i can stare out and see my children bouncing on the trampoline and, and tell them to shut up when i'm recording <laughs> so. i must say when listening to the uh, podcast i do always imagine it being um darker and more cramped yeah <laughs> i know it's, it's yeah. quite, and you can see it's quite behind you. <laughs> it's scandy chic uh, my, my wife is swedish so it's all very yeah. you know yeah. tastefully done out in white painted wood um yeah it's not quite the sort of dark and spooky interior you might imagine but i tell you what though when i'm in here at night you've got foxes running around yeah. screaming and squirrels running across the top of the roof it gets quite creepy yeah. sometimes i'm there just kind of writing a little bit about a particularly spooky moment in the series and then suddenly you hear this animal cluttering clattering passing yeah yeah actually you heard the foxes in the final episode didn't you they yeah, yeah. little cameo <laughs> appearance yeah 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 foxes Terrifying, so many creatures. <laughs> so, Danny, for the benefit of listeners who've not heard the um, the Battersea Poltergeist podcast yet, um, we will talk about it in great detail as we go. But for a few minutes, it'd be nice to just talk generally about yourself and and your background and what brought you to producing this kind of remarkable show and what was your inspiration behind it. Sure. Um, well, I mean, my my I mean, I've been a writer for a long time. My background is in writing comedy originally. And, uh, you know, I still do write a lot of comedy. Some people might know The Cold Swedish Winter and Rudy's Rare Records, things like that that I've done for Radio 4. Um, and I don't know, I've always had this interest in, this fascination with the paranormal uh, and, and with belief in general, I think. You know, I, I was brought up 
in a household that was very devoutly atheist. And my mum had been brought up a Catholic, but had kind of you know decided against it as when she became an adult. And and you know, I always had this fascination with what was out there because we'd go to my grandparents' house and I'd see all these images of Catholicism on the walls, and there'd be you know books about the Pope everywhere. And I think I I was interested coming from a a belief-free house about what belief meant and, and what was out there. Was there some sort of magical mystery outside the realms of, of normality that, that I was missing out on? So, you know, I think that I've, I've been interested in religion and I've written quite a few things about religion over the years and and then also, you know, the paranormal. And so I, I definitely would cite that as something that is, is something that's led me to this subject. Um, but, you know, I mean, clearly, you know, sort of lots of you know, ghost experiences on, on television and in films as a kid. And, you know, I mean, like most people uh, of, of sort of roughly my age, you know, like Ghost Watch was clearly a, a major influence <laughs> that that kind of, you know, in, incredible feeling of something that felt so real and, and, and really spooked us all out. Um, I, I mean, you know, the Battersea Poltergeist came out of a, a show that I made a few years back called Haunted, which told individual ghost stories. I got people to to tell me about their experiences. And it was um, it was something that actually came out of a play I was writing. I was writing a play, which was about a relationship between two people where one person believed there was a ghost in the house and the other person was a skeptic and didn't believe in ghosts and about the impact that had on their relationship. And that idea of, you know, if, if you can't believe me, you know, you know, how can we have this relationship of trust and love if you don't believe this thing that, you know, is, is fundamentally kind of life-changing experience? And I think that that's something I was really interested in, that idea of the moment that you have a paranormal experience, the moment you see a ghost. It is this life-changing moment. You can't go back from that. You know, if you're completely 100% sure you witnessed that, then it takes you into different territory you know and, and and inevitably there will be people who look at you and consider you consider that you're mad or that you're lying or that you know um you know whatever I mean I, so I, that really interested me and it, it sort of came out of having chatted to a friend where a friend told me that she'd seen a ghost and I was like oh wow gosh you know that you know and, and you do sort of you know it, it changes the relationship you sort of you know you, you sort of see the person in a slightly different light and you know certainly from my point of view not a negative one because I am fascinated I was you know I'm somebody who would lo love to see a ghost and hasn't seen one myself but it, it it's just you, you know it's uh, a moment that feels very different and so that's that interested me and I was putting that into play form and as part of the research for that I put a shout out on social media saying has anybody seen a ghost and I was just inundated with mm -hmm. stories and and you know, and Haunted grew out of that because I felt I want to tell these stories and there's something quite powerful to this. And um, and it was really nice. We created a kind of a safe space, I think, for people to feel they could tell their stories and not be judged, you know. And, and the whole idea was the series appealed equally to skeptics and believers and that we offered possible solutions, you know, from both points of view, possible solutions skeptically and from a paranormal point of view. But we didn't seek to trample over people's stories or debunk it or you know pour cold water on it or or, or or to you know on the flip side to credulously just say yes it's true and you know run around sort of screaming and sort of you know, say how spooky it is you know it was a, a, a desire to find a middle ground between those shows we know where people run around with night vision cameras on screaming and you know at, at the least sort of uh, sound of a creaking floorboard and the kind of you know Richard Wiseman-esque kind of world of of you know, sort of grumpily debunking ghosts, <laughs> kind of kicking the 
the, the, the living daylights out of anyone who's um, sort of uh, claimed to see a ghost. But, um, you know, so, so I, I felt there was a middle ground, which, which was respectful to belief, but also, you know, questioning and interrogatory to, to what, what has happened. And, and thankfully, that, that's, you know, the same with Battersea Poltergeist. We seem to have attracted both groups in equal measure. But, but the Battersea Poltergeist was actually a story that I was told during Haunted. And that, that I realized very definitely wasn't a single episode. It was something that was much, much bigger. Yeah, I was yeah. we were talking before about the idea that, um, that, you know, your approach maybe is, oh, at least I describe it as a kind of optimistic skepticism, yeah. you know, kind, of, kind of the sort of hopefulness of maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm going to be really interested in, obviously, you talked about Ghost Watchers being, you know, you know, a, a kind of formative show. But what I'm just wondering, like, in terms of other horror or kind of ghost narratives, films or books that you, you know, kind of really responded to or inspired, you know, kind of your interest or piqued your interest in, in horror? I mean, I think, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I think Ghostwatch was interesting because about the nature of the event, you know, I felt like for a long time, I've been really interested in the idea of creating a podcast that feels like an event, you know, and, you know, we, we, most things we watch or listen to now, we consume, you know, individually, solitarily, you know, we, we, um, you know, we binge through something and we don't have that moment of enjoying it together. And so I was really interested in the idea of something that, you know, we were all experiencing together as a community and, you know, that we, we built this thing throughout the investigation of people taking part and becoming armchair sleuths. And then we built up to these things, which, you know, I, I can't claim the credit for this idea. It was the BBC social media team's idea, but the idea of having these listen-alongs where mm. everybody listened to the last two episodes together and, and tweeted live during it. And I, I love that, you know, for me, you know, if there's, if there's a parallel with Ghostwatch, then it is that idea of an event that people take part in. Um, but in terms of other kind of reference points, I mean, you know, I found myself watching a lot of horror films uh, before making this, just, you know, just kind of looking at, you know, like the different possibilities of how you scare people, you know, um, it's very easy to keep making loud noises, particularly with audio, I think it's very mm -hmm. easy to kind of keep just going boom, you know, after a quiet moment and, you know, you can't keep doing that. So it was interesting. And, you know, I was watching things like, you know, The Conjuring and, um, you know, I watched the the uh, TV series of The Exorcist on Amazon Prime. I was kind of interested in, you know, kind of very contemporary horror and what was out there. And, um, you know, the country I found interesting because it's sort of period set, but it's got a very contemporary tone. And, you know, I, I was very keen to do something with Battersea Poltergeist that felt very contemporary and modern, even though it was set in the 1950s. And, you know, I think surely the teenager at the heart of the story who is now you know, the 80 year old woman mm. who tells her story in it, you know, she, she's a very modern presence in this story, I think. And, you know, it's funny, you look at photographs of Shirley as a teenager and she looks like a 21st century yeah. teenager planted into the 50s. She's got this incredibly cool look to her. And, and you know, I think, you know, she, she was surrounded by people who were really products of the kind of 30s and 40s. And she feels like this mm. incredibly fresh and vital and, you know, kind of modern presence there. Um, yeah, but, you know, and, and you know, I, I've just been over the last few years since being haunted, I just have consumed so much horror in different forms, like sort of E. Nesbitt's uh, short stories, her spooky short stories. I think they're called horror stories. You know, um, I just I've got some of them. I've never read them. Yeah, I mean, they're great. You know, I just I just found myself reading a lot of, you know, horror short stories and just, you know, my, my next to me right now, I've got this huge pile of books about ghosts. I was reading The Haunting of Alma Fielding by Kate Summerscale, which is a, mm. you know, brilliant um 
look at a poltergeist case from the 30s, but from a very sort of psychoanalytical Freudian point of view, um, Colin Wilson's poltergeist book. I mean, I was just, I was mainlining, you know, things, but I, I find myself like, you know, going to all sorts of different sources. I, I love those old um, 70s BBC plays. I think it's called, is it called the Dead of Night? series oh, um, the, the dead of night which includes the exorcism which the is exorcism the yeah which yeah. is a brilliant piece you know and and the stone tapes you know and yeah. you know that's a kind of real golden age of horror that and and simon who i work with simon barnard at baffle gab you know he's actually specialized in making audio versions of a lot of old horror films and horror and tv series like he's just made children of the stones for the bbc yeah. as well and yeah. i think you know both of us you know, have a real interest in in the ghost stories of that period. Um, I mean, The Exorcism is a brilliant piece of absolutely fascinating, fascinating piece, which people should check out if they haven't, um, uh, which is kind of, it, it involves sort of socialist social commentary as part of the ghost story and, and sort of, you know, about how it, it sort of feeds into like how people were treated during the Industrial Revolution and their ghosts coming back to haunt some gentrified people who've moved into this house in the country. and. Um, you know, really powerful, but you know, a brilliant little play, a self-contained, I think I'm going to say maybe like an hour long play. And a lot, a lot of those yeah. things from that period were just brilliant self-contained plays that could have easily sat on stage as well. Um, yeah, you know, I think I mean, there is clearly a real resurgence of interest in horror and ghost stories at the moment, which you yeah. could certainly potentially tie into our chaotic, uncertain and sadly death-filled times, you know, I think, you know, yeah. Battersea Poltergeist is set post Second World War and you can see that big interest post-war as, as people try and make sense of the death and trauma they've been through. And I think, you know, now, I mean, you can draw certain parallels to what we're all experiencing now and, you know, horror seems in increasingly popular, but also you hear, you know, that there's this huge boom in exorcisms, you know, both in Christian communities and Muslim communities, exorcism is on the rise. So. We are we are looking more and more to ghosts to explain the world around us. Yeah, I mean it's um, it's it's, it's we've haunted and I absolutely love haunted and and we've and as you sort of moved on with Battersea Podcast, it's that mixture of uh, like a lot of the horror you seem to be drawn to as well, but it's the mixture of just very human, real lives mixed overlaid with the supernatural, so it becomes a more scary. And as you say in your podcast, sort of also in a way more comforting uh, depending on where you are in your life yeah sometimes the, uh, but it's just the um it's 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 the uh how, how did the how did the actual when did you have the decision to bring the drama into obviously you write drama i mean the swedish winter is absolutely i absolutely love the swedish winter um called swedish winter um but then, you, so you've obviously got that side of everything. When did you? When did you decide I'm going to do, basically, a haunted, but but with bringing the actors as well. At the, at the very beginning, really, and I'd experimented with drama documentary in a series I made for Audible, um, probably a couple of years ago. About uh, it was called um, Folsom Untold. It was about Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison concert, and we told the story as if it was a thriller uh, over five parts, uh, kind of with cliffhanger endings to the episodes. And we we were on a much smaller budget and we, we didn't have a lot of money for actors, but we we used small drama bits to bring things to life. And it just struck me as this great way to, you know, very fittingly for this subject to bring the dead to life. You know, that if you had moments and um, 
you know, strong characters who could no longer talk to you in interview form. It was a way to bring their voices into it and, and to make it feel very current and fresh, I think. And, um, you know, we're clearly familiar with drama doc. You know, it's a fairly well-trodden genre now, but I think mostly what I see in drama doc is that the, the drama is used to give a bit of background color. You know, you watch a, a, a doc about the dam busters or, you know, Guy Fawkes or whatever, and you see a little few scenes to kind of bring it to life and give it a bit of, bit of jazz. But um, uh, I was really interested in doing something that were, where the drama and the doc were equal bedfellows and, and they, you know, had equal weight. <clears throat> but obviously it's, a, it's not, you know, I, I was nervous beforehand because it, it's not necessarily easy to pull off because I think the audiences for a drama podcast and a documentary podcast, particularly like, a, say, a, a true crime podcast, you know, are, are very different, I think. And, um, and you know, there was a danger that, you know, people are listening to the documentary and enjoying it and then go, oh, God, now the drama or, you know, or vice versa, I'm getting into the dramatic characters and then suddenly here's this bloke talking about stuff. So, you know, one, one thing that kind of helped crack it early on was, was um, Rianne Roberts, the commissioner, said, think about the drama as being this kind of tool at your disposal, that this is your investigation. And the drama is one of the things you can do, just as you can do an experiment, you can do an interview. And it, and it kind of made a lot of sense. And so, you know, we'd go to the drama at points when we needed to illustrate things. And I think what, what makes the drama feel real and grounds it throughout is Shirley herself. As soon as you hear... Mm. a line from Shirley's interview and you know that you're about to hear the characters she's describing and the events she's describing it just makes it feel so real so it, it just yeah. it started to feel very organic at that point I think and you, you, um, you, you yeah. refer to them in the present tense as well when you're sort of doing your overview of you know previously on Battersea Poltergeist you prefer to 1956 and onwards in the present tense as well, which I think was a very small but really clever thing. So, I mean, I, I could see why you had those concerns, but you pulled it off completely for me because. Well, well thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, both, it was, both sides just worked perfectly. I mean, I, I I always loved the idea about this kind of investigation. You know, I think for a long time I've been building up to want to do, you know, this thing about the paranormal that felt like a real event. I mean, I, I, I used to watch things like Most Haunted Live, you know, uh, which um, is, is a very different beast. And, you know, uh, some people might find it a bit sort of off-puttingly cheesy, but I think there was a point in time where as somebody interested in ghosts, I just found Most Haunted incredibly exciting to watch, you know, and, and you knew that you were watching something that was some to some degree an act of theatre, you know, and, and I mean, you know, Kieran O'Keefe, our expert on our show, was actually involved in the moment that, Sort of outed Derek Akora as, as faking things. You know, he slipped him some uh, bogus information that Derek then channeled, and you know, <laughs> re revealed. You know, he slipped him a name for a spirit that was possibly in the place they were investigating. That was Creed Kafer, which was an anagram of Derek is a faker. Uh, I think. And, <laughs> and, and Derek channeled that. You know, and, and so I mean, you were kind of aware watching it that, that it was a theatrical <laughs> performance, and that you you imagined that the scares and the screams were all set up. But I think there was a point for me as somebody interested in ghosts where I found that really essential viewing. I loved it. And those events they had where they had big crowds of people turning up to some haunted place and they mm -hmm. were, you know, Yvette and Derek were running around having fun, getting spooked. And then you had presenters there sort of, you know, talking to the audience and commenting back on that, talking to experts. Something excited me about that. And I just, I was very keen to do something that had that kind of energy to it, I think. And and so, yes, it made a lot of sense to put it in the present tense and to have that feel of an investigation unfolding. And, 
you know, and it wasn't entirely a a kind of just a, a trick or a convention. It was, you know, because we were literally learning about these things as we went and, and more information was emerging and new witnesses were coming out as they contacted us. So, you know, it, it, it did feel to me like this was an investigation unfolding. And, you know, having listened to lots of true crime podcasts about cold cases and trying to dig out new witnesses and new material, I mean, it, it really did feel like that to me. Yeah. And how much, how much was it commissioned during lockdown? I mean, after COVID-19? It's funny, it was commissioned just before, like, I think yeah. we got the go-ahead almost like, I mean, I think it's literally the week we went into lockdown, we got the go-ahead. Because it's, yeah, yeah, because it's, because it feels like the format you chose was, was also, because we're living in such uncertain times, you were able to then go, we're in another lockdown, or we're not in, we're in a period where we're allowed out again, so it's sort of ongoing yeah, I mean, we, we were lucky the way it, the way it happened. We, we had that glorious moment in the summer where things opened up a bit and that gave us this window to record the drama. Yeah. Even though actually, you know, Daphne Keane, uh, our star, was in Madrid. We recorded her down the line from Madrid. So yeah. it's a real testament to the, you know, the amazing way that recording technology has moved on recently that we were able to make it feel she was in the room of us. Um, yeah. But, you know, we got the rest of our actors together in a studio and you know, albeit in separate booths. And uh, so that was brilliant, you know, and, and then that gave us the drama, which was kind of a bedrock. You know, we knew we had that in the bank, but, you know, we, we had moments where we were able to go up to like, for instance, to 30 East Drive, the haunted house we go to in episode six. And that that was, you know, we just managed to get that in before the second lockdown kicked in. Um, but certainly a lot of interviews were done remotely. And, um, you know, it is, I mean, it, it's amazing. I, mean, I felt blessed to be working in audio because it is possible, you you can make something on this scale. You know, we couldn't have made a TV series of this during lockdown, that would have been impossible, but we were able to make an audio series and mm. to still make it feel like, you know, it wasn't all just phone conversations. Um, but I, th I think, you know, making it during lockdown has definitely given us this lovely dynamic with the audience. You know, there's an audience out there who are hungry for entertainment, mm. who enjoyed the fact that they were kind of looking forward to the next episode coming out. Uh, the following week, you know, that that idea of, you know, I, I was a massive fan of Serial. It was the first podcast I listened to, I think. And and I really loved the fact that I was waiting for the, the episode to come out. And, you know, is it Thursday? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. It's come out now. <laughs> Hold on. Oh, no, that's American time. It's coming out. It's not here yet. You know, and uh, and I just loved that. So I think even though one or two people cursed me early on for sort of, you know, why can't I listen to it all in one go? I think the majority of people enjoyed that appointment to, to listen. And um and then, the, you know, the the, the um, listen-alongs we did towards the end of the series where people listened together in unison across the world were kind of lovely moment of bringing us together in a, in a, in a time that we can't be together. And, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you can see, I mean, it, you know, all, all of us can probably see that there is this hungriness at the moment for yeah. entertainment, you know, whether it's new series on television or, or, or new podcasts, you know, people are consuming things in, in bigger bulk and mm. quicker than they were previously. Did, did anybody, I know, I know some people have mentioned this, but a bit like Pipes and Ghostwatch, did anybody worry that, <laughs> well, I know Shirley even expressed this on your podcast, that um, suddenly millions of people are channeling uh, channeling Donald. I'll tell you the strangest story I've heard on that level is uh, one, one man told me that he'd driven to the, what he believed was the exact site of where the house used to be, because 
number 63 Wycliffe Road, the house where the Battersea Poltergeist takes place, doesn't exist anymore. Half the street was demolished and has become other streets and I think you know, modern housing estates. So he drove to, based on his research, this is the great thing, like people have been doing so much research. There's a, apparently a corner of Battersea Library set aside to the series now because people have been <laughs> deluging them with requests for maps and documents. But he'd done his research, worked out where the house would have been drove to this spot so presumably sort of you know parked up outside someone's back garden now and listened to one of the episodes <laughs> and then shouted out donald donald <laughs> sort of his attempt to kind of channel channel the poltergeist you know um and which did was donald shout back bonkers no <laughs> thankfully there was no reply um, but uh that, that well, felt well, about I, as close to tempting fate as you can get I was about to say something that would have been a spoiler, but we're not quite in spoilers zone. Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I think we're moving into the area yes. where we I'll can't discuss there, anything yeah. else without spoiling the series. So we've yeah. all heard the series. <laughs> listeners, <laughs> any listeners who've not heard it yet, this is your last chance to go and listen to this show on, on your podcast app. It's it, it really is incredible the way it unfolds. Um, yeah. You know, if you if you did make it up, well done. <laughs> I know you were it saying is... before we start recording that some people accused you of making it up and then planting, <gasps> planting, uh, yeah, I mean, a normal I mean, amount of information all over the internet. But cl clearly, you know, conspiracy theories are all the rage these days. But um, yeah, there was a sort of small uh, but vocal minority of people who were convinced it was all made up and that I, you know, that it was some sort of like modern day audio ghost watch and and that um, I, I had through some nefarious powers planted information all across the internet and presumably also kind of tricked the the entire you know all, all of the papers in britain and itvs this morning and all sorts of different people <laughs> that, 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 that well it was done. you know an amazing it was amazing uh kind an of amazing um, prop department trick that i pulled off but <laughs> yeah. but um you know I, I was like sorry to disappoint you it is real you know but but i think you know actually the sort of serious point behind that is that is that you know this is a case that it was very hard to research beforehand uh, because there wasn't much out there at all. And the reason is when it took place, really, that, you know, you look at Enfield and the reason we know so much about Enfield is because in the 70s, you know, it was more likely a TV crew would turn up on your doorstep if something like this happened. And the TV crew did turn up and filmed it. And then, you know, in 2005 or whenever YouTube started, you know, this, these things ended up on YouTube. And talking to Ros Morris, the BBC journalist, who was one of the first people on the scene at Enfield, you know, she said Enfield wasn't really the Enfield that we know it as now until YouTube, you know, it was, it was, you know, the fact that these videos went across the internet and were hungrily consumed by people who wanted to know about ghost stories that has turned it into this kind of legend. And, you know, now you have, you know, the conjuring Two sort of, you know, recreating the whole story so that a homicidal phantom nun is the ghost, you know, yeah. but, um, but, you know, I mean, Enfield is a legend now, but it's because of this internet fame. You know, and, and that's not possible with Battersea because mm. we don't have that. You know, there were no TV crews turning up. There was one TV appearance by Shirley, which, you know, as was the way with a lot of BBC programmes in the 50s has been wiped from the archives, doesn't exist anymore. You know, the, there's newspaper articles and, you know, Chibs files and there's, you know, all the material that we've referenced in the series. But you don't have the audio or the video that would, would make it this Internet sensation. So, um you know, so I think that's the why. That's that's why people didn't know about it, and um, and it, it is odd because I think you know in the fifties this was m sort of higher profile. This was a more famous case in its day than Enfield was in its day. You know, there was more written about this. It was across all the newspapers, and surely was on primetime TV. And, and you know, and incredibly, even 
it was talked about in the House of the Parliament. The Home Secretary was commenting on this case, which seems kind of mind blowing now. But, yeah. but so, I mean, it was a massive sensation, but then it has disappeared. And I guess, you know, part of that was because Shirley wanted to forget about it as well. You know, she mm -hmm. wasn't going out there and trying to talk about her story or promote it, you know, until she was approached in, you know, a few years ago in her 70s by the writer James Clark, who, who co-wrote her book with her, The Poltergeist Prince of London. And, um, you know, at that point, she felt ready to kind of talk about it again and confront it. But there's, I mean, this incredible story that, you know, I mean, we might touch on this in our bonus episode, but basically Shirley and Derek, her husband, got this uh, letter from Harold Chibbett's family after Chibbett's wife died. Harold Chibbett was the, the investigator at the heart of the case, so people haven't heard it. And um, he, you know, when his wife died, uh, the relatives were clearing out the house and they basically wrote to Shirley and said, we found this box of files about you. There's a note from Chibbett saying, you know, that you, you should have them. And, uh, you know, if you want them, come and get them, otherwise we're gonna throw them away. And so Shirley and Derek zoomed up to London, grabbed this material in these boxes. And, you know, this was Shirley's teenage years, her childhood, you know, that much of it she wasn't even aware of, you know, things that Chibbett had written that she wasn't aware of at the time. And, you know, this huge treasure trove of information on the case. And they rescued it and they brought it back to their house and they put it straight in the attic and didn't look at it for 25 years really, because they were too, scared or too you know too nervous about opening up this pandora's box and bringing mm. the ghost back and, and it wasn't until her son went up and found it in the attic when he was about 16 and she then had to talk about it because he was reading through it and reading about his mother's ghost and and um and then she sat him down and her daughter who was 15 at the time so the same age Shirley was when the haunting happened and she had to talk about this and I think that was very difficult and I think she was really mm. nervous about about it and you can understand that whether you're a believer or a skeptic you can understand the idea of you know if you're a believer in you, this idea that the ghost could literally come back mm -hmm. and if you're a skeptic the idea that you plant this idea in the minds of teenagers and, and it's kind of quite a frightening and you know you know a, a sort of very powerful thing to plant in their mind mm -hmm. so yeah I mean I think that was very difficult and you know it isn't until quite recently that she's really felt able to confront the case again and, and I think now she's doing that it is therapeutic I think really. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's probably a, re a relief for you because I guess you would have had to stop if it looked like it was, <laughs> it, you know, if early on it looked like she was not handling it well or... Yeah, I mean, we've always been really conscious of that duty of care to Shirley. And I think, you know, for me, what's been lovely is that when she was a 15-year-old, she was very much, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if victim is the right word, but she was kind of really, you know, set upon by the, the press and she became at the center of this media storm and the way she was portrayed was very salacious, very prurient, um, you know, kind of really sexualized and kind of quite, quite distasteful really, you know, this idea of the teenager with the ghost lover. And I think it was very much the product of two things coming together, this, this 1950s post-war interest in the supernatural as a means of processing the second world war. And, and then this fifties interest in the, in the teenager. It's when the modern teenager is invented as a concept, you know, the, the, James Dean had died shortly before The Haunting Starts. You know, Elvis had released Heartbreak Hotel the month The Haunting Starts. You know, it was the point where teenagers started to become considered as a separate entity and one that was slightly worrying and potentially threatening to the rest of society. So, so you get that feeding in. You know, now, in her, you know, as an 80-year-old, she's getting this second brush of fame. You know, she's 
in all the papers and she's been on breakfast telly in Australia and it's you know <laughs> it's it's you know but it's it's on her terms and I think that's that's yeah. very powerful you know she, she is doing it on her terms you know controlling the narrative and, and she's telling her story very powerfully and you know um and I think you know it's brilliant people are really warm to her you see, I see a lot of love for her from our audience you know which which yeah. you know is, is great I think yeah so yeah so um you you you, you describe yourself as a skeptic and I guess in a way that's that's what makes you such a good way in for the audience because most of us will be will be skeptics you, you you use Roger Clark in some of your in some of your podcasts the haunted podcasts and his his amazing book natural history of ghosts um which we've sort of plugged on here before uh especially when the bbc slightly accidentally ripped oh, off okay, the title. Yeah. Oh. um but um <laughs> not, not but, uh, but he's got a brilliant quote in there and i forget who it's from but he just says it's somebody who says uh i don't be i don't believe in ghosts but i am scared of them and uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, i think that kind of sums up how we all are i'm a skeptic but this reminded this flashed me back to when I was 18, 19, and we used to do a lot of Ouija boards and we got ourselves in a right state. <laughs> we went, we had to go to the occult shop because I grew up in Northampton, which is like Gough Central. They had a massive occult shop. Um, and we went to the occult shop, and as we walked in, the bloke behind the counter just went, What have you done? Like, <laughs> like he gets like you get really goth teenagers in who've messed around with powers, they don't understand all the time. But our person, when we get together, my old school friends, like we're all about to turn 50, and every time we get together, someone mentions this guy's name and everyone goes, don't mention his name! Don't mention his name! <laughs> because it feels like he's real. And but what struck me about it and I, is that the personality of our supposed ghost, who we talked to a lot, who said he was a Satanist from who died in the year 1212, um, <laughs> His his personality seemed to change depending who was around the board, and it felt a bit like that sort of mass hysteria. That's a human thing. So that that there was something of that mass hysteria in in the house in Bat in Battersea Poltergeist, and I I personally think you can probably explain a lot by human the human brain, not you know the the, the you know the the uh, capacity for self-delusion is pretty huge, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah, I mean, you know, our, our, the sort of fallible machines of our body, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, the, those that very early engineering that was programmed into us to run away from saber-toothed tigers, the, the fight or flight mechanisms that, you know, are incredibly powerful. And uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's interesting though, just to go back to what you said at the beginning of that about uh, most of us are skeptics. I mean, I, I, I think, <laughs> I don't think that's true, actually. I mean, it, what, what's been mm. really interesting is is I can see that the audience are going to split 50-50. And I've mm. always been incredibly conscious of that, that I'm talking to two camps with very, very different viewpoints. And I think, you know, that, that's why for me, the ending of the series, it was important to uh, address both groups on equal terms. And, and, I, mm. and I do feel like there's a sort of choose your own adventure element to the ending of the series, which, <laughs> you know, uh, is, you know, ultimately, you know, we can offer you skeptic solutions and we can offer you solutions that, that you know are, are there that are genuinely paranormal if you're a believer but the the only solution that counts is for you you know in your in your mind because you know um it it, it, it evokes such strong opinions i think and um you know I, I think yes you can look at this case and you can definitely see 
moments which appear to have human hand behind them. But I think mm. also there are many, many moments in the case which are really inexplicable and really, really, really hard to explain. And, you know, th that's why I love it. It's like, it's like this locked room mystery yeah. where the impossible happens in front of this group of people. And, you know, and, and a, a line I use in the final episode that, that I did is it's a detective story where one of the suspects is a ghost or possibly a ghost, you know, I, I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, you, you can look at this and you can see it as a rich psychological drama of how did these people make these impossible things happen and, and scratch your head for months and years trying to work that out. Or you can, um, you know, look at it that it was a ghost story and it's incredible proof of ghosts existing. Yeah. So I feel like whether you're a believer or a skeptic, it's equally yeah. rich, really. Um, I, also th I also think skeptics, and speaking for myself here, I'm probably our capacity for self-delusion probably extends to going, I'm a skeptic, I'm a skeptic, I'm going to ignore that stuff I can't explore, I explain. Because you look back at our Ouija board days and stuff happened that none of us skeptics could explain at the same time. You're gonna time. need the name of the person you brought to I, on the Ouija board. I genuinely, as a skeptic, find it really like, I don't want to say his name. <laughs> no, 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 he's not, he's not famous or anything, but just, just to yeah. give the name power. He's not a yeah. famous name. But to our little group of friends, some some of the people in the group will literally cross themselves, and <laughs> you know, I think most people are <laughs> capable of that. Though. I mean, like you know, it's really, I, I I find that really fascinating that that idea of you know that however much we say we don't believe in ghosts, however skeptic we are, there are little things that you know we have little thresholds for it. Like that, there's um. There's a book, I'm, I'm going to say Bruce M. Hood, Superstition, or The Science of Superstition. In that book, he, he talks about this experiment he does with students at his university. And it's, he holds up this cardigan and he says, will anybody put this cardigan on for me? He says, this is the cardigan that used to belong to Fred West. Will anybody put this cardigan on? And nobody ever does it. Everybody always refuses. And this is an audience of, of, of you know, people who would see themselves as skeptics and scientists and very rational, but they won't do that because it feels like a bridge too far. It feels like this object has some power to you know some sort of talismanic power and you know it isn't really the cardigan of fred west at yeah, all you know that's what they but, did um... with the house as well. it was almost a sort of superstitious it wasn't they, you know they demolished it brick by brick and i always felt the, the house of cromwell road it wasn't just right right because they yeah. didn't want trophy hunters yeah yeah it was something more than that it was like to excise yeah people. but you know i, I think you know th th these our minds, you know, are powerful things. They, they, they do play these games with us. And I think, you know, m most, most skeptics, I think, if you said to them, you know, would you mind sleeping in the room of the house, which is a bit haunted? You know, we're staying in this old cottage in the country and there's one room that a lot of people have had ghost experiences in. Would you, are you okay to sleep in that? I think, you know, it, it takes a certain kind of person to, to just be able to do that and not worry about it. I think, you know, yeah. as soon as you plant that thought in our heads, we are susceptible mm -hmm. to it. And, you know, I, I'd consider myself a fairly rational person and, you know, having come from a, I, I'd call myself a skeptic who wants to believe, I guess, but I'm ridiculously superstitious. Like I have this thing where if I see a solitary magpie, I wait around until I see another one coming along. I'm like, where's your mate? Come on, where's your mate? So we, I get the not one for sorrow, but two for Joyce. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm just, you know, I, I think all of us have little things like that, that little sort of superstitious susceptibilities. And um, so I, I don't think any, you know, Maybe there are some people out there who are just incredibly rational and, and don't have any of that. But I think most of us don't can't take some sort of moral high ground saying, you know, that we are completely yeah. sensible and other people are, are fools, you know. But, and and I, I've always 
felt like, um, you know, it, it's so important to be respectful of people's beliefs because, mm. you know, and I think this really came out in Haunted that actually we did one episode about um, the people who saw the ghosts of, experienced the ghosts of um, loved ones and, and, you know, people they'd lost, partners or parents, you know. Mm. And for me, I realised they're just the very... The, the, the necessity of that in their lives you know and, and the, the the last thing I would have wanted to do was try and go around offering suggestions of, of, about what it might be and debunking that because it was clear how important that was to those people and and you know they were utterly convinced that that was happening and it really made me realize that you know we get locked into this this debate which is based around the question do ghosts exist and for me it's the it's the wrong question I I, I think it's about why do we have ghosts you know why do ghosts exist and what are they because you know to paraphrase harry price the great ghost hunter he, he was once asked do ghosts exist and he said they exist because people see them people have these experiences and you know and, and if you go through the sort of experiences that shirley went through in the battersea poltergeist you know it is traumatic you know whether you if you know if you don't believe there was any actual paranormal activity there that, that's fine but she still went through this incredibly traumatic experience that has left this lasting legacy with her and so being respectful of that is incredibly important to me. And that sort of sets the whole tone. And I've always wanted, with whatever I've done, I've always wanted to have, you know, a sense, you know, and, and you know, I get this. It's definitely the case that believers listen to these programs and they believe mm. it is made for them. And skeptics listen to them and believe it is made for them. And, you know, and it's interesting, you know, you, you said most of us are skeptics. I would say probably if I was talking to, I have talked to some uh, paranormal podcast where it's a believer presenting it and you know they are convinced that it's a show made for them and everybody must believe so you know it, it's it's really interesting that whichever viewpoint you're coming to this from you know you will project onto it your beliefs and, and take away from it you know what, what sort of fits your beliefs. Yeah I think that there's also that sense that that there's space isn't there in either reading that you know for down in in you know in whatever the kind of argument is so you've got the you know kind of the space for okay as skeptics we can't ever a hundred percent disprove these experiences because they're subjective and equally as as believers you can't you know kind of you don't have anything concrete to 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 convince the skeptics with um you know so there's you know in both cases there's that that really delicious i think um yeah enigmatic gap um that i think is is for your podcast you know is something that i think uniting both of those those sides that normally would be you know quite opposed yeah, yeah you know I, it's been a delight for me just to see how respectful and, and nice the debate has been it's something that is very binary and you know very different opinions but it, it could have become a real, you know, you're wrong, I hate you kind of yeah. um, thing, like so much of, mm. you know, just life and the internet is at the moment. <laughs> but it wasn't, it was really nice and open-minded and respectful. And I think, you know, a lot of people have commented on how, what, how nice that was to have people with different opinions getting on. But um, yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, it was just so important to me to kind of be, you know, because also I think it gives a dramatic energy to the show as well to pull in those two different directions you know to to veer towards something that seems to give weight to the skeptic arguments and then suddenly flips you around and gives you something that is seemingly impossible unless it's paranormal so it, it just it, it gave it gave a great sort of narrative tension to the the whole show I think um yeah and I think yeah, that, but, that just know, at the end though just the um because we're in spoiler territory now that just the way that you you know kind of withhold those two two kind of little bits uh at the end about john the revelation around john and then the kind of you know 
the is it the jumble sale the mm. medium Agnes yeah, yeah those that those to kind of two moments <laughs> of of you know really typifying the idea of pulling the audience in in different directions yeah um, yeah. it's really 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 enjoyable. Uh, yeah, I, was I, think it, I think it's sorry. I was just going to say. I think it's sort of uh, you know it shows my my own conflict in my mind. You know that you know I sort of start the series off by saying I don't believe in ghosts is what I would have said to you two years ago before I found this case. And you know this I, I felt like with haunted that was generally most of the stories. I felt like we were able to offer a relatively compelling skeptical argument you know that's not to say I don't think it was a ghost it's just you know we offered an explanation which if the person chose to take it potentially explained what had happened to them I think you know um but um you know with this I I, I feel like you know however much you interrogate it that, that I mean I don't, I don't think any theory ever quite explains all of the mysterious mm -hmm. moments in this case and and really that's probably the beauty of it that I think any great ghost story has to be robustly skeptic proof you know it has to retain its mysteries the reason we're still talking about Borley or Enfield or you know the black monk of Pontefract you know the, the case I looked at in episode six at 30 East Drive you know these great ghost stories have to have that mystery at their heart that you know you know if, if we could easily explain them we wouldn't still be chatting about them now we wouldn't want to sort of yeah. you know sit on zoom or you know in, in a glorious post-covid future <laughs> sit in the pub until closing time debating these things oh. you know you, you need that at the heart of it i think is there anything um because you've obviously by now heard a lot of ghost stories and people inundating you with tales when you asked on twitter is there any type of story or event that you just wouldn't want to delve into that you just think nah do you know what oh, nothing to do with that it's too much um as in because of the scary factor too um, scariness or you know, it's yeah funny. I mean, if we're talking about <laughs> superstitions and being susceptible you know I, I still have a thing about the ouija board the, the sort of you know like I, you know in all my kind of ghost hunting adventures i've resisted doing the ouija board myself like for some <laughs> reason i don't know why but just for some reason it sort of feels like a step too far it's sort of tampering it's opening a portal you know maybe <laughs> the same sort of things Ian feels but um I I you know that that worries me a little bit I, I don't know I mean you know I think I, I I'm sent a lot of stories you know and I you know I was sent a lot when I made Haunted I've been sent a lot for this and I I, I really love the fact that people share those stories and, and I think it's incredibly informative for me and incredibly interesting for me and I, I feel kind of privileged that people share them and, and, and a lot of people sharing them are saying I've not really felt comfortable talking about this because I'm worried mm -hmm. you know that people will think I'm mad or lying or you know I'll be judged and, and I think what it has revealed to me is that so many more people have had these experiences than we think yeah. you know like you know people have asked me a lot recently like do you think we'll see another poltergeist case like this you know can we see uh, a case like this in the era of the smartphone you know with, with the sort of you know, the, the, the implication there being that, you know, people would be caught out faking or whatever, you know. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, are these cases a product of their age? There, there seems to have been a, a big poltergeist case sort of every 10 years, kind of like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. Um, and I think there are a lot of cases out there, you know, and I think that there are a lot of people out there having experiences and, and fr frightened to talk and, and, and seeking some sort of explanation. And, and you know, the, 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 if you are able to talk about it, then perhaps you can find explanations or, or at the very least sort of, you know, just air your fears and, and, and talk about it. So, you know, that, that's been really interesting for me to sort of tapping into that. And I think hopefully 
we'll look at a few of those experiences in our bonus app and you know I'd, I'd love to do another series of a show like haunted dealing with some of those stories um but you know I, I think when you get sent them you were asking me about what I wouldn't touch and I think there are certain stories where you feel you know it's driven by a sort of attention seeking need you know mm -hmm. and you sort of feel like you know sure the person might believe it but I you know it, it feels like there's a sort of drama to it you know and and, and it's um you know it wants attention it's you know the, the, it's the sort of story that would love to be featured in a tv ghost hunting show but the stories that interest me and intrigue me are the ones where the person doesn't feel like that you know I think in Haunted most of the people there were like I don't believe in ghosts but I've seen but. one you know and and, <laughs> and and that that I you know that in, intrigues me massively that, that those are the stories that I connect with where it's just it really boils down to a kind of tone of voice and, and, and Shirley has that you know you just feel like there's a quality to the voice that is so matter of fact and straightforward telling this story and yet has that you know, little whiff of fear that kind of, you know, you can feel, you can feel that this still affects them, the, the, so the emotional so impact of the story on them. Chilling. Yeah, so that, that, that's, the, you know, those are the stories that interest me. Yeah, re-listening to the, to Haunting, the one that always stuck with me at the time, I first listened to it anyway, was, um, and re-listening to it, was the, was the people that, a bit like the Battersea, you know, the, the people that got used to seeing the old lady who turned out to be a racist. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just that there was something really chilling about the matter of factness of hello. In, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, really interesting story. Like that was in the seventies in a in a house in Walthamstow where I live. I walk down that street, yeah. uh, you know, once a week at least, and and um, you know, always kind of look. Ah, oh, that's the haunted house. But um, uh, I yeah, it was you know again just these stories come from all sources. This was a bloke who I think had like liked a program I did on the radio once or something like that and he sort of got in touch and kind of ended up being a Facebook friend and you know when I said any ghost stories he, he went yeah I've got this one and, and it ends up being this incredibly powerful story about you know these experiences of his family in the 70s living in this house with this this ghost that you know this old lady who seemed to kind of come in and talk to the children and as if it was her house and they were just living in her house and then when they moved out there were lots of reports of the ghost seemingly being racist to people who'd moved in, you know, not uh, sort of people, you know, I think uh, it was a time when there was a lot of immigration from India and Pakistan to the area and there were people from India and Pakistan moving into the house and seemingly being targeted by this ghost. And um, and I spoke to like a Muslim historian about this and we got into sort of really interesting uh, territory about, you know, kind of socio-political territory, but also sort of talking about the idea of jinn and how kind of Muslim immigrants would feel about the idea of a ghost in the house at the time. And, you know, just it was such a rich case, you know, but but in the end, it seemed to boil down to it had been kind of an urban myth in a way. And it had been this kind of product of some of the the, the bigotry of the time, you know, of the people around mm. the neighbours, you know, and um, and there didn't seem when I went through the records, there didn't actually seem any evidence of of Indian or Pakistani families even living in the house or, or, or kind of, you know, certainly not being kind of kicked out of it after a short time. So it, it the story that had kind of you know, run around the area and kind of spread like wildfire was a, a sort of a weird kind of folkloric product of, of that time of that kind of, um, you know, that, that shifting society at that time. So, you know, I mean, st stories like that, I, I love. And, you know, Roger Clark, who you mentioned earlier, who, you know, his book, uh, The Natural History of Ghosts is, is such a brilliant read, uh, uh, you know, so absolutely a real Bible of the subject. And, um, you know, he, he talked to me once about 
how you know we have ghosts that are the products of their eras and you know the ghosts of the 18th century were obsessed with wills and codicils and you know <laughs> e you know inheritances and you know the ghosts of the 19th century there was this very sorry the ghosts after the first world war were these very you know this raw kind of need to kind of grieve and contacting the war dead you know and and you know and there you have a ghost that is a product of its time you know this kind of you know this shifting sort of demographic of Walthamstow and the kind of you know the racism of you know towards these people arriving and you know, the, you know these you know the, the layers of London society the different you know the, the Cockneys and then the Asian people coming in and then Eastern European people coming in and these different layers and each each one bringing their kind of stories and their superstitions to it and and um you know the, the kind of a ghost being the construct of many different elements um yeah so you know <laughs> i could talk yeah. about that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah and also the the, the two-parter with the nurses is uh i mean i'd tell anyone who's who's listening who hasn't listened to haunted to because it really is really is great but that feels like a movie the whole side room haunted by les is just yeah um, yeah i mean you know i was just you know, really lucky to find great great storytellers you know because i think it's not just about the story it's about the person telling it and, and any any ghost story is you know stands and falls on the person telling it and on, on their ability to convey their fear to us you know the fear that we feel whilst listening to this story is the fear that they felt at the time you know and, and i think that that that's what was powerful about the people telling their stories but um and, it, and also but also it is this kind of dual thing isn't it that you you have the fear but also that the comfort you know the idea that you know the uh, life after death the, the the um you know the idea that you know we, we spend our lives working towards something where you know we're constantly building we're trying to make something of our lives and our careers and you know putting all this information together and we've got it all in our heads so if, if suddenly when we die that that just disappears it feels heartbreaking and so the idea that there might be some continuity that we might be able to carry on beyond that is is you know incredibly seductive and you know I, I love that idea as somebody who kind of has a sort of bit of a fear of death you know I think that's another thing that's drawn me to this subject this this that, that idea um very powerful idea really um so I think you know ghosts exist because they are this very necessary mechanism in society for processing death we need that as a society and that's why you know, despite any technological advances in our society, we still have the beliefs we did when we were yeah. cave people, you know, that we believe that the dead can come back to life. And, and clearly we need that as a society. Yeah, I mean, your, yeah. your mission your mission statement on Haunted, which also carries over to Battersea Poltergeist, is, is uh, um, do ghosts exist? And if they don't, why do we see them? Mm -hmm. that's, that's like a brilliant, <laughs> that's a brilliant little bit piece yeah. of writing. Um, but I was just thinking, what's what's your as, as we sort of wrap up? What's your? It, this has been such an amazing success. Um, like it's it's, uh, it's it's sort of been trending really quite high over <laughs> Twitter. I noticed when you, especially during your tweet alongs. I mean, would you? It would seem to me, if I was the BBC, I'd be going, "Where's? Do you want season two? I know you. I know you're still in Battersea Poltergeist mode. <laughs> but do you have an idea of a case you might want to?" dig into i mean I, I think you know we are going to do another investigation which will be really lovely the, the bbc would like us to do another one yeah. which is is great but um <laughs> uh, so i mean um we're, we're just um trying to work out what that would be at the moment and sort of got a few potential ideas but i think the the, the, the sort of trick to pull off is to do something that 
I, I mean, it, it's hard, I think, because you need a really credible witness at the heart of it. I think, you know, I wouldn't do Borley or, you know, I, I mean, Enfield does have living witnesses, obviously, but I feel like Enfield's been covered so extensively yeah. that mm. it would feel it wouldn't feel so fresh. But, you know, I wouldn't do Borley, for instance, because there isn't that living witness at the heart of it. Um, but, you know, sort of finding a story that has the breadth of narrative that can cover a series and a credible witness at the heart of it is not easy. So we're sort of looking around and trying to find something. But, you know, it's also a question of, you know, if you just do another poltergeist case, does that feel repetitive? I don't know. It's, it, it has to be a case that feels, you know, a, a bit different, I think. Um, so, yeah. so so if anyone's listening and wants to send us some stories, then that would yeah. be gratefully received. But, you know, it, it's, it's going to be fun exploring. I think, you know, I, I'm really enjoying kind of digging into that and, and you know, just reading through all these stories people have sent me. And, and I think, you know, even if they don't end up being another series on this scale, and I, I'm really hopeful that we'll do something else like Haunted, because I think Haunted ran aground because the company we were making it for, the American company, kind of went bust, but they still own the IP for it because of the really rubbish contract we signed with them. You know, we'd sort of signed our rights away in some sort of Faustian pact, you know, so <laughs> that kind of kiboshed a second series, which was really kind of heartbreaking at the time. And, you know, I sort of had several years of people saying, when's the next series of Haunted? And me going like, oh God, you don't know how much I would love to do another series of the show. It's just kind oh, of killing well. me. You know, I have, um, get, I have to get your army of researchers to uh, put the. Have you put the call out on Twitter yet? For what's uh, the for, next? What, for another story? What's the next Battersea? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, we're yeah. sort of ch chatting to the, you know, chatting to a lot of the people we know, sort of in that world. You know, the kind of, you know, the, the sort of um, paranormal experts and the kind of, you know, people who write about this stuff. Just kind of looking around, but you know, I think you know th that will be an enjoyable process, process in itself. Looking around for another story. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I'm looking forward to that. Um, in yeah. terms of Battersea Poltergeist, though, um, you're doing episode nine. When's that going to come out? Yeah, so I'm going to say sort of two or three weeks away from when we're speaking now, which is probably about sort of end of March. Um, we're just kind of, I've been taking a little bit of time off this week to just kind of recover after a really intense end of the series, you know, we, towards the end of the series, because we were making it in real time. And, you know, we were being reactive to what people were you know, to the kind of detective work of the listeners and that sort of thing. So we ended up, you know, the, the last couple of apps we were making very close to the wire. I mean, I like, the, you know, the last episode was finished about, oh, I mean, it's crazy. It was like sort of, I mean, it must have been like seven o'clock the night before it went out or something. Uh, you know, it was really close to the wire. And, um, and you know, uh, and that sort of took its toll a bit. So I've just been sort of, you know, spending a bit, little bit of time this you've week not in the shed. You, <laughs> you've got that lovely bit where you reconnect with your family, sort of. Yeah. Like, I mean, it really. I haven't I've been down the really rabbit hole. <laughs> it really was, you know. I literally, you know, I was telling the kids they were on the trampoline. I was like, you know, just be quiet while I record this bit, and then I'll come out and play. But um, <laughs> you know, so, so and then next week I'll sort of sit down and, and start putting Ep Nine together. And and uh, you know, the idea is, you know, I, I sort of did a a shout out on Twitter the other day saying, are there bits of the case that still puzzle you that you'd like to explore in more detail? And I think, you know, the idea is that we'll go back through and all those little moments that, you know, are puzzling and intriguing, we'll, we'll kind of have a look at it in a bit more detail and, you know, we'll put a few questions to Shirley and just it sort of... It was a really you know, lovely... Yeah. Um, hey, you had Toby Jones, so that's, that's, that made everyone warm to him anyway, but just Howard Chibbets as a person kind of like just just very warm and nice um also slightly thwarted but yeah, it's the, yeah. 
is there a sort of is there a sort of um you know the, his unpublished book is there any sort of will it see the light of day as a result it's, it's, it's interesting every, every, yeah everyone everyone's asking me about that at the moment that people are intrigued by that um and I, I don't know is the short answer i mean like you know i think shirley's interested in that i mean it, it's it's not an easy task because um some of the book is typed up, but some of it is still in handwritten notes and quite hard to read. Um, uh, I mean, you know, the, the book is very much about his pursuit to prove, oh, wow, can you hear the wind there? The, the wind suddenly, as we mentioned Chip's book, the wind outside <laughs> oh, the suddenly kicked up into a kind of spooky gale. But um, uh, 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 so the book is very much about his quest to prove Donald was the Dauphin, Prince Louis Charles. So, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the kind of quite the account of, the investigation that no. some people might want, it, it, you know, it, it very much is that kind of quest to prove the Dauphin identity. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I know there are people who are kind of interested in asking about that, and you know, mm. we'll see if that feels like, you know, if that feels like the right thing to do. And, and Shirley will obviously be in charge of that decision because you know she, she, you know, she has that you know in in her possession given to her by Chip. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's an incredible. <laughs> It's incredible sharp left turn in the case. You're like, what? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, which, which, you know, it was interesting when we did episode seven, it was one of the listen alongs we did. And so we could see how people reacted to it. And yeah. initially that moment where Chip says, you know, are you really the ghost of Louis the 17th? You know, it was like, you know, people were like kind of went, whoa, sort of, you know, <laughs> jumping the shark, you know, kind of <laughs> see people really react from it and back away from it. And then obviously we sort of addressed that head on immediately afterwards. And, um, you know, but then, you know, people had a very different reaction to when we featured the historian in our case update, who was talking about Prince Louis Charles, you know, Deborah Cadbury had written the book about him. And, you know, it is this incredibly emotive story, this incredibly powerful story about this little boy who was killed by the French revolutionary leaders just because he had inherited his, his father's title. And, you know, I, I was welling up as I, I heard her tell me about it. And, and you can see why Chip gets drawn in. It's an incredibly, uh, you know, emotive and powerful story. And, and it is this chance to solve one of the great conspiracy theories of history. And, and, you know, again, we're dealing with the 1950s where Chip wasn't able to just go out and Google it and go, oh, actually, no, it's probably not true. You know, he was doing research by writing letters to France and having to wait weeks to get a letter back that then didn't adequately answer. So then he'd have to write another letter and wait weeks again. So. You know, you can see why it took him so long. Mm. And the, the novel is this kind of labor of love, this kind of huge work of, you know, trying to pin down these details through trips to the British Library and letters to French uh, institutions and, you know, writing to, you know, that sweet shop in France that we've heard him go to in the final episode, you know, writing to them and saying, can you confirm that you did make sweets for the royal family? And, you know, and then, the, yes, they confirmed that. But then when he went to try and go there, the sweet shop had closed down. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, just it was an absolute kind of obsessive labor, you know, but, um, but, you know, I, 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 you know, I think a lot of people now, I think, as we reach the end of the series, maybe sort of feel differently about that element of the story that they did when they first heard it, you know, it, that now feels like a very <laughs> compelling and, you know, important part of the overall, you know, um, which has its own little chills that it sends down mm. the spine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty, I mean, we, we could probably talk forever because it's so, it's such a, such a fascinating case in its own right and then the way you've constructed it is just you know just you know you've taken the information and you've constructed it with a you know with a dramatist's eye and it's just it's just such a beautiful uh 
mixture of different disciplines for my money. Oh, thank you. And thank you. Second season. <laughs> yeah. To uh, yeah. to go all Alan Partridge, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> they'd be mad. But yeah, sounds sounds like they're uh, they're not mad. So that's brilliant. Uh -huh. But, well, uh, thank you. That's lovely. No, no, no. It's really it's so nice to hear and, and, and see that it has been enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. It, it's a wonderful piece of scholarship and, and also storytelling. And um, and what a fascinating uh, conversation, which is I think is this chat has ended up a bit more philosophical than, than we all expected. <laughs> but that's because it, it is fascinating and um, yeah. we love it so much. And uh, that's Dania... what standing in the shed does to me. I get, I get a little deep and meaningful in here. <laughs> I still feel like I should say the name of the spirit that Yay! was Because <laughs> I tell you what, if something happens to me, then you, uh, I get but, to be... But, but do you pass the curse on to us night. though? It, it's oh, yeah. like you know yeah. it follows you know, like... <laughs> yes. well, we're in host territory now we're in host territory now his name was christopher rose and he i'm writing that ah! down. and he died in 1212 were you able to work out that he was a real historical figure or not no we never did but obviously okay. it was 1989 1990 ah so, yes again just like chip we're in the dark. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably Google him now and be like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I've got a Ouija board in, yeah. in my bedroom. Yeah. Oh, you know. of course you have. No, thanks. You've ever yeah. looked for an episode <laughs> topic. Yeah. The, the, the top Google hit will be the only murderous Satanist ever to be <laughs> to come back in the afterlife and haunt children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but like I said, I'm, I'm fully, I fully think it was almost like playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was like we were creating a thing between us. Well, you know, it's but interesting. Still, have, you, have you heard of the Philip experiment? Uh, I think I vague. I don't. Yeah, I think I vaguely heard of. I think I remember reading about that ages ago. Yeah, go, go away and Google people. Google the Philip experiment. But it, it is basically a, a sort of academic but study is that where the one people where they added somebody onto a family tree. And then sort of concentrated on. I remember reading that. Years no, ago. Uh, no. I mean, they they basically kind of the, the, a group of people together created a ghost. They invented an identity mm -hmm. for uh, a dead person, and then yeah. they spent weeks and months, I think, sort of trying to channel this made-up dead person. But then oh, they right. did, as part of the process, they did eventually channel this person that they had created, and it was like they were getting messages yeah, from him, weird. and it was, it's a really interesting experiment. The, the one um, I read might be the same one, but I, I, the bit that sticks out is that they found a family tree, and they gave this person, they made him an extra brother that had never oh, okay. existed, and it's sort of in the Civil War sort of period. Yes, okay, well, might... maybe it is the same, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll have a Google, but yeah, okay. but that sort, but no, of, it's, it's, that sort of thing is fascinating. Mm -hmm. right? No, totally, totally. Totally. Mm -hmm. I was just, yeah, I mean, like I said, we could talk forever. No, thank you so much, though. No, that's, thank a, you. that's a pleasure. Okay, everybody, it's time for another bag of death, and I am happy to be joined once again by the wonderful Howard on the phone. Hello, Howard on the phone. Here I am on the other end of the phone. Hello. Hello. This is the exciting bit where we never know what's going to come out of this bag which contains all of the uh, the English language horror films that Howard and I have ever watched. Such a lot. Which so one will be produced? I'm having a rummage. And it is... Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Ah, oh, 
classic, yeah. Wow, a, another classic Hammer film from, although quite late in in Hammer, quite late period Hammer, nineteen seventy seventy one, I think we're yes. talking about, um, which I think you could argue is the the last great year of Hammer because they had, uh, you know, like a, a run of I think four pretty good movies in that year. They had this, they had Hands of the Ripper. They had Twins of Evil, I think. Um, And I I think Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, all of which (laughs) I enjoy very much. Um, But Blood from the Mummy's Tomb is one that stands out particularly. Howard, why does this one stand out to you? Well, I think, again, whenever we talk about these films, I always say I try to remember when I first saw them. This was definitely one of the films... It was on... In that series of horror double bills, it was in that first series that I watched of those double bills, along with The Ghoul and Legends of the Werewolf and stuff. Uh, and this was one, so I remember it particularly well. And what's interesting thing about this film, I think, and it is, I think it's a terrific film, is that it's a mummy film without a mummy. Yes. Which I think is a good thing, because mummy films, the thing about the mummy is it's a rather limited character, really. It's not that scary. It's just kind of like a bloke in bandages. And he just stomps around and kills people, but he's always controlled by somebody. He's always controlled by a sort of fanatical high priest. And the mummy itself can look a little bit ridiculous sometimes, you know, just sort of, sort of staggering about. Kind of. Well, uh, particularly we're uh, thinking of, like, the Lon Chaney version. I think he, he did three <laughs> movies for the Universal, didn't we? Yeah, yes. I mean, I think Hammer's first version of the mummy is terrific. I think Christopher Lee's really great as the mummy because he's really fast and really strong. But I just think the mummy, is, it's such a kind of, it doesn't have the same dramatic potential as Dracula or the werewolf. Um, yeah. You know, not quite as visceral, it's not quite as exciting. He's just, he always walks so slowly. Um, and so this was an attempt to kind of do a mummy film without a mummy, and it works really well, because instead of the mummy, it's uh, a woman who gets possessed by the evil spirit of uh, an ancient sort of, Queen, isn't she, or something? Queen of the Nile, or something. Yeah, she, she's and the nameless queen. Uh, well, I think that at first they don't know her name, but then eventually it becomes clear that her name is Tara, and she's an Egyptian queen who was betrayed and murdered by her own priests. And yes. Who's, uh, and basically, I mean, all again, the thing about mummy films is they always have the same basic plot in where the archaeologists burst into the tomb and it's sacrilege and blasphemy, and the high priest says, "I will have my revenge," and so he gets the mummy to kill off all the archaeologists one by one. And I think, well, this does that. It's got the same basic plot, but it does it in a much more interesting way. How they kill, um, how they kill off. It isn't just killed off by a mummy. Sort of, it's it's the killing, the, the murder is much more interesting. I was thinking about the George Colaris one in the asylum. Yeah, yeah. Which is sort of my old Snakey Berrigan, I think his name is in the... Yes. Um, well, I, I think we need to give credit to our old friend Chris Wicking, who wrote Scream and Scream Again, which we talked about in, in detail on one of our early episodes. Um, yeah. And this basically is a mummy movie filtered through his, um, as Jonathan Rigby stated, his what-the-hell-is-going-on approach to screenwriting. So it's... You don't... It's not linear. Um, you see that the the archaeologist breached the tomb in flashback, and yeah. at the same time we're intercutting to them in uh, England as they're being 
kind of uh, confronted by strange incidents or people um, and kind of the death is, is drawing closer. And at the same time, we're also seeing other flashbacks um, kind of telling us who Tara was and what happened to her. Um, and all this is kind of mixed in together and it is quite um, disorienting, but in a really good way. Uh, it's important to note that it, um, makes a clear break with the Hammer kind of period gothic style. It's not period. It's set in a contemporary. I mean, when I first saw this film when I was very young, um, like you know, when it was part of that horrible bill, um, I don't think I liked it very much. I didn't really know what was going on. I yeah. expected there to be a mummy, and there wasn't. And I thought, what's? It's all a bit metaphysical and all. What is she's possessed, and what's happening, and why? But now I've seen it since, and I've seen it so many times since. I, I think it's one of the best films. No, I agree. It, it is again. Um, doing it slightly differently it's sort of like it's not set in Egypt or whatever it is set in modern day it's set in the modern day how many Hammer films are set in the modern world not many uh, and that gives it a, a kind of extra edge to it and, uh, and there's a great cast in it as well I think well uh, yes I, I mean we could, I think we should name some of them um, the the ancient Egyptian queen and the modern day woman who becomes slave to her vengeful spirit are both played by Valerie Leon, who is absolutely stunning. Both visually, she's one of the most beautiful actresses ever in a Hammer film or ever in British cinema. Um, although she she didn't really ever have any lead roles apart from this, I think. Um, you say she is a beautiful actress, and that could be the problem in that she's so beautiful. Film. You you almost your your brain switches off when watching well, it if you're if you're a <laughs> If you're that way inclined, um, and and I think that maybe doesn't help when you're already watching a, a movie whose storytelling is quite uh, obtuse, um, if that's the right word, quite or quite obscure. Um, you know, you you you're going to miss the the visual parallels that are supposed to kind of give you the clue what's going on. Um, but her performance is just wonderful. I was going to say she was because of the kind of the, the way British films are made and how limited they are. The... She was usually cast just as decoration. She's, I mean, she's in a couple of carry-on films and she's an episode of The Persuaders and she's just there to look beautiful and not really play much of a part. You know, she's not given much to do. She's, she's just there to look nice. She's uh, probably the only actress to play um, opposite both Roger Moore and Sean Connery's version of Bond and sleep with them both in oh, different right. films. She's in Spy Love Me. Oh, no, she doesn't sleep with... Um, Roger Moore, she plays a kind of sexy, sinister hotel uh, receptionist, I think. I don't think there's more to it than that. But she definitely sleeps with uh, Bond in um, in Never Say Never Again as well. She's she's in the same hotel with Bond. She doesn't Again, in both films, she doesn't have a great role. She's kind of there briefly and makes an impression. But in this film, she's so good that you realise what a wasted opportunity was what a waste of uh, talent that she wasn't given those sort of parts to play you know and there's a lot of actors there's an actress called margaret nolan as well who died i think last year and she was always casting those sort of parts and she's a really good actress and but she's very because she's very beautiful and everything and she's just kind of cast in these sort of just there just there for decoration you know just there to sort of and mm. you know it must have been i think quite frustrating for them that they weren't really given the opportunity to play the kind of part that the Valerie is given in this film. She's you know, she's the lead really. She's she carries it. Yeah, and she's terrific. She is. Um some of the other actors so the uh the traditional kind of hammer 
um, opposition between the, uh, I think it, Kim Newman calls it the savant and the monster, the kind of strong um, male authority figure and the subversive, usually male villain. In this movie, obviously that, that dynamic is, um, the archetypal representation is Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, um, yes. or vice versa, because uh, I think it's usually Cushing who's the good one. Um, but in this film, it's Andrew Keir, um, who was Professor Quatermass in Quatermass in the Pit. He's oh, brilliant, he's, Yes, absolutely. He's playing Professor Fuchs here, which is a name that you've got to say very carefully. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, James Villiers, who I think was a great actor, um, yeah. he plays the villain who is called Corbeck. And they were both um, members of this expedition to excavate the tomb of Queen Tara. And they've both fallen under her influence in different ways, in opposite ways. Um, and uh, the, what the film does, which is again quite interesting, is that it's not a simple good versus evil binary that's going on. They're both kind of unreliable and disaffected in different ways by, by the, the kind of presence or the influence of, of Tara. And... Margaret, the character played by Valerie Leon, who is Professor Fuchs's daughter, uh, she is basically caught between these two guys who are essentially both trying to exploit her in different ways. Um, well, again, yes, they do, don't they? And I think that's what makes it interesting that the hero... I mean, supposedly the hero is kind of the Andrew Keir character. He is the savant, if you like. But he does exploit his daughter. He does use her. Yeah. And he's not that sympathetic. Um I think that's that's really... And it's interesting you say the Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee stuff, is that Peter Cushing was cast in that part. Yes, well, what we need to mention is that this is a film that was touched by tragedy in multiple ways, which, for me, is one of the reasons why it's so impressive, the kind of end result. So Cushing originally was cast as Professor Fuchs, but uh, production coincided with the moment when his wife became, um, you know, terminally ill. Um, so he had to drop out of the production at, after one day of shooting. Um, and I think had he played it, uh, it would have been another... I mean, C Cushing's roles, it wasn't just this film, but, but the kind of savant character becomes less reliable in the later Hammer films. And Cushing plays a, a few kind of very morally grey or even downright tainted kind of characters who are nevertheless um cast in some sometimes not heroic but kind of protagonist roles only because there's somebody else in the film who's even worse than they are i'm thinking thinking particularly of twins of evil here twins of evil yes i mean um and it's hard but he's a good guy or a bad guy in that well yeah yeah i mean that's another one to talk about but um uh but it would have been... I'm glad, for the sake of the film, I'm glad that Cushing wasn't in it. Obviously, the situ the circumstances of him dropping out of it were awful. Um, and, you know, the loss of his wife would be a shadow that would hang over the rest of his life, which was, you know, another 25 years-ish. Um, you know, I remember finding it so moving. I read it, his autobiography of his memoirs called Past Forgetting. And yeah. the introduction to that basically says, um, 
this book's about the the, the the time of my life from 1971 through now. During these years, I have not been alive. I have merely been existing. Um, That's very sad. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to finish what I, I was trying to say, I think it is to the benefit of the film, both because Cushing had already been in another of uh, Hammer's Mummy films, and I think it would be illogical to have him in this one as well, um, as a different character. But also, Andre Kia's... I keep calling it Andrew Kier Andrew because of Andre Morel. Um, Andrew Kier's performance is great as well as, as Fuchs. And, and it's only disappointing if you come to this movie as I did when I first saw it 20 odd years ago, hoping that it would be another Quatermass in the pit because he is not playing that character. Um, well, Andrew Kier is a more kind of rugged, a more, slightly more belligerent actor certainly than Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing, it would be much more easy to feel sorry for Peter Cushing and, and he's a more sympathetic kind of presence. Because Andrew Key is much tougher. He's in a lot of war films and stuff. So, but he's kind of sensitive as well. So, and he brings out the sensitivity. It's, it's more kind of concealed with Andrew Keir. It's He's a tougher person. And so, you know, when he is sort of exploiting his daughter, you feel, you know, kind of more resistant to that but he's sort of you can sort of see underneath he's kind of basically a good person but it's more you, you know it's uh... again we were talking about Plague of the Zombies a while ago and um, saying it, it worked because they didn't have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it they had different actors which made it kind of more interesting and, and this as well having Andrew Keir and doing as well Andrew yeah. Keir and Jake makes it more interesting because they're, they're different kind of actors they're playing those parts but they're doing it in a different way and it just makes it fresher and it makes it more interesting but you've got someone like Andrew Keir who's n not the refined elegant person that Peter Cushing was but somebody who's a lot more kind of in your face kind of thing and there's also good actors in the mentioned of good actors like Hugh Burden and George Kolaris Citizen Kane yes. and one of my character actors uh, a guy called James Cossins oh yeah who's in the, the asylum who um, is particularly fond of his assistant. <laughs> well, no, the orderlies in the asylum, yeah, are James Cossins, and the other one is David Jackson, who sci-fi fans will know from his regular role in the first two series of Blake 7 in the late uh, 70s. Um, it's so good, is you get good actors like that in fairly small parts. Yeah, and saying memorable lines, like you say, the whole, the, the, the whole line about snakey berrigan. And... Um, uh, you know, there's also re really interesting kind of very small roles in it. Like if you look in the credits at the end, there's an actor called Jonathan Byrne who plays a character who's just listed as Saturnine Young Man. And he, he, he's got a, a really nice little scene with um, one. another one of the main characters in the movie is Rosalie Crutchley, who is one of one of... One of the other members of the exhibition, and she's great. Then we've got um, uh, oh, my mind's blanked. But the 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 young male lead, the character is called Todd Browning. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a just... universal in joke. Yeah. Um, well, Mark, Mark Edwards. Edwards. Yeah. Uh, he went on to do a film called Tower of Evil. Yes. A slasher film made in Britain. Then I think he went to America, and then he completely disappeared. But he's so... very good in this. He's he's a really good presence. Um, there's one bad performance. I think it's a bad performance. Oh, yeah. Aubrey and Morris. Aubrey Morris. <laughs> right. Uh, 
I don't know why he's talking in a very strange way, Doctor. Uh, yeah, I love no, I love Aubrey Morris. I remember uh, in in general, but I remember I wrote about this film uh, in at my degree, and I remember writing that Aubrey Morris is never less than a bizarre screen presence. He even stands out in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and The Wicker Man. When he's surrounded by bizarreness, he's still probably the strangest thing in it. But I love that he's there, although, yeah, he doesn't really fit the film. Well, he's just sort of hamming it up. It's a different kind of... I don't know whether he's sending it up or, or what, but it's just... It, it, it stands out as... Um very mannered sort of performance and it uh, and because everybody else is so good it, it does it, it makes it you know it stands out even more as being a bad performance there is something interesting about the fact that that morris is there he's also in the movie legend of the mummy which was made in about 2000 starring lou gossett jr and that, like Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, is a film adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel The Jewel of Seven Stars. So he's in two versions of the same story. So I'd kind of quite like to see it for that. Is he better in that one than this one? Uh, I don't know, because I haven't seen it. But um, but I, I, I kind of have intended for a long time to track it down. Um, and the other major thing about this movie that we've not mentioned that you can't really get away with with not mentioning is the fact that the director died halfway through the production. Um, it was directed by Seth Holt, um, who directed some great earlier Hammer films like Taste of Fear with Susan Strasberg and The Nanny, I think. Yeah. Was it The Nanny? Or... With Bette Davis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Both of which are great. Um, yeah. He oversaw the first three weeks of shooting, I think. Then he suddenly died... And the last week of shooting was overseen by uh, Hammer executive Michael Carreras, who had directed some of their earlier horror movies, but was mainly a producer. Um, and then he oversaw the edit. And and also and and uh, Seth Holt, who died very suddenly. Um, uh, I think Carreras's memorable quote from an interview he gave that I I tracked down that I think was from Fangoria was that he said. Um, Seth was having his dinner one night, and then he just wasn't. I don't know who finished his dinner, but I had to finish the film. Uh, which is somewhat callous, but there we go. And, uh, and yeah, apparently Seth had not left behind um, many notes, so there wasn't really a clear idea of what the edit should be like. So they kind of had to piece it together. Um, however, I, I do think that the end result does work. No, you can't tell because because of the way because it's non-linear because of the way with all the flashbacks and you can't tell that uh, there are two different directors. Uh, I think I, the I, the only bit that gives it away, which you'd only know if you've seen lots of these films and are intimately familiar, is I think all the scenes in the asylum were shot by Carreras, and you can I, tell because they've got those crazy camera movements. When you know yeah. when you hear weird noises from off the camera and the camera kind of lurches to one side, and those are completely Carreras. You can see him doing stuff like that in his other movies, like Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. I think he directed, didn't he? Um, and and they kind of stand out as being different. But apart from that, the the film is remarkably consistent. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a great film. It's it's definitely. Uh, um... And I do yeah. think it's got one of the most chilling endings of any horror movie. It's it's a really yeah, I, unique. I, 
understand the ending, but now I sort of, I do, and and it is, it is, it is very unsettling. Yeah. And yeah, it really uh, is. Oh, and the music is great by Tristram Carey as well, who was the same person who did the music for Quasimus and the Pit. Um, the music, but that is great. Yeah, no, it's no, it's one of the best of the Hammer films, I think, and I've yeah. I've seen it multiple times because I had to when I was writing about it and I always enjoyed it um, and I, I feel like going back to it now so I yeah, think... if Hammer, Hammer tried to do something new and succeeding and they did do that in the early 70s um, the, the, were, the, the, the least effective films they made were the Frankensteins and Draculas when they tried to do something different like Captain Kronos or Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde or Vampire Circus as, as gory as that is it, it worked and they could, they could do it. It's just that they kept repeating themselves and they kept bringing back Dracula and Frankenstein and stuff because the audience expects it. But kind of Blood from Mummy's Tomb shows that they still had, you know, there's still imagination and ingenuity and, and ambition in the people making Hammer films. And, and they made something that is different. It's not the usual Mummy film, but it's much more interesting than that. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think it's a great film, yeah. I think yeah. it's one of the best Hammer films of its time and of, of all of them. I think so. I think that they it's really worth checking out. It's a really interesting genre piece. And I think the tragedy of Hammer and of the horror genre in general is that actually the kind of, in a way, Lovecraftian uh, approach to cosmic horror that this movie hints at, that Hammer and probably no other film producer at the time either, they didn't know how to follow up on that. There are no more movies in this kind of style and in fact i think that the kind of uh the tragedy of, of the end of hammer is that like you say they did make lots of movies that were taking a fresh approach and that did it successfully but they whenever they did it once they never did it again yeah that's a shame um, yes. it's, it's in the same way that they they followed the you know when once they'd done like you said before once they did frankenstein must be destroyed they didn't do another film building on that film's strength, so they did Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell, which instead recycled some of the earlier things that they'd done with that character. And I think that was um, kind of endemic across their later output. Maybe that's kind of the business sense, you know, you, you doing what's kind of worked commercially. There was an audience for the Draculas and Frankenstein, so they were making films for that. I think uh, in Japan they were very popular and, and in other countries. But, you know, it shows that... Uh, and apparently Captain Kronos, which I think is a very kind of fresh, novel approach to the vampire film, was not a success. So And no. they didn't make a sequel. So maybe some of these films that tried to do things differently, take a different tack, they weren't as popular as the more conventional Hammer films, so they didn't make them. And, you know, and... and I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a shame. And in a way, Hammer, as a company, all these decades later, is still struggling with its gothic heritage. And it, it's... I mean, they do make more horror films now, and every now and then we're lucky to see one emerge, but there's still a sense that they don't really know what they're doing with the material. They're just trying different things. And, you know, sometimes... Like, The Woman in Black was a big success. Um... But on the other hand, what did they do after that? They made a, a, a not very effective sequel, which made less money. Um, but I suppose that's the the movie business all over, really. Well, people expect a Hammer film, a Hammer film, to be a certain thing, a certain type of film. So, 
they're slightly limited by that, I suppose. And they were, I think they were back in the 70s. People expected Hammer. And anyway, horror was changing anyway. So, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff was being made in The Omen and Hammer couldn't compete with those sort of things. So, Well, they but, try to, but that's that's another conversation. Yeah. Um, well, they, yeah, I know they, they tried. But this, I mean, I just think this shows... This film and some of the others, like Doctor Jack and the Sister Hyde, one shows that they could have, they had, they could have done it. There were people there who were able to do it, who come up with new ideas and or a fresh approach to an old idea. Uh, and now these films, perhaps they weren't very successful at the time, but now they are kind of considered classics. They're much more fondly remembered and much more acclaimed than the Frankenstein's and Dracula's and vampire films, lesbian vampire films that were made at the time, which have not really stood the test of time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a shame, but, you know, the point is well made, though, that this is a movie that stands up well, and I think we we can shout from the rooftops about this movie and recommend it to anyone who's not seen it. Um, I think it was ahead of its time, in a way. I think people didn't quite understand it at the time. Mm. Now, uh, I think people are much more kind of, like, well, sophisticated, but they can sort of see what it's trying to be. Um uh, no, I think it's great. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's really well done. And again, it's the Hammer expertise, isn't it? In in the sets and the costumes and the photography and the music, certainly. I think so. Yes, I think it's one of the last <laughs> Hammer films to be lit by Arthur Grant, who who was their kind of most prolific director of photography, um, and he died quite soon after this one, I think. Um, but it just looks beautiful. Um, and uh, oh yeah, I I could go on about this movie for yeah. for hours, Howard. I I don't think we 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 are allowed to. I think it breaks our remit, but I I definitely love to. But it's a very strong recommendation from both of us then for Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. I might watch it tonight, actually. <laughs> I might just do that myself. All right, my friend. Well, I'll see you at the next bag of death. Who knows what we'll be talking about at that time? Thanks very much, Howard. Very much. Thank you, listeners. So, listeners, it's time for our usual end of episode recommendations. Uh, I'm back with Ian and with Kirsty and Stella right now. So, Hello. who'd like to go first? I'll go first. I'm going to recommend uh, first of all, it's a YouTube channel called Ask a Mortician. And she's really, really cool. She's really funny. She is a mortician and she will answer, has all these videos answering all manner of questions that you might want to know of somebody who regularly deals with the dead. Um, And then she also co-hosts a podcast called Death in the Afternoon. And that's hilarious. And they do, some of it's true crime, some of it's just stuff about bodies and death and all kinds of things. But she's, she's really, really warm. She's really, really funny. And yeah, they're great. So yeah, Ask a Mortician and Death in the Afternoon. Fantastic. That's right up my street. That's mm. <laughs> all I did this weekend. <laughs> I just watched all <laughs> their videos. Yeah, and now I know things about, you know, what happens to the body when it's being cremated. And, you know, a lot. <laughs> Happy. Uh, like that. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. <laughs> Ian, what do you want to recommend this week? No, the Terror. Um, I know it was sort of lo- lots of people who had BT or a few people who uh, had bust copyright and got the torrents, uh, more like. Um, had been talking about the terror for absolutely ages. It was on BT and got a bit lost. And now it's on BBC iPlayer and it's, they were right. It is like one of the best things I've ever seen. Have you guys seen? 
It's sort of based on a true story of two ships that got lost in 1846, I think. That's the one. In in the in in the Arctic. Um but they also bring in a sort of supernatural slash hysterical air. But it's very much done and it's not in their heads. It is very much it could be in their heads, but actually as the audience, you know, you know, we've seen some stuff that's not in their heads. Um and it's so it's got sort of uh, you know, Inuit Inuit legends and things mixed in with lead poisoning in the food and mutinies and all sorts of stuff. But all the characters are actually real people, I didn't realise. Um and it's really quite grim. It's, it's it is a horror. It's TV horror, so you should definitely watch it. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, but it's just, it's just amazing. It's uh, with uh, Kieran Hines off of, uh, off of, off of Game of Thrones and Rome, and uh, as the captain. And then it's got Tobias Menzies off of Game of Thrones and Rome, <laughs> and, 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 and Outlander, uh, yeah. <laughs> and Outlander, yeah, and and then it's but well, in the, the Crown. <laughs> in the lead, it's got yeah. In the lead, it's also got uh, him off the Crown as well as Tobias Menzies, Jared Harris. Um, do you know off the top of your head who wrote and directed the Terror? Because all the others just say from Ridley Scott, and it's presumably not directed by him. And it's it's a it's an anthology series, isn't it? I was in the, well, yeah, I was in these, yeah, something they different. Brought, but they brought, well, they yeah, apparently they've. Sort of done a basically capitalizing on it. I don't know how good it's nothing to do with the first series, and the terror is the name of one of the ships. So yeah, so, so there's already been one series of it, but it was unconnected. And, well, no, no, this was the first one, I do believe. Yeah. All right, and then there's, there's, which is 2018, and then Infamy, 2019, um, uh. and that's set on an island, uh, and is you know nothing to do as far as I can tell it's Japanese American thing so I think a bit like uh American Horror Story they're kind of doing they're doing a sort of uh this is this is the you know or a bit like American uh a bit like True Detective sort mm. of same thing but different but actually they could be totally different <laughs> they could have totally different names so um, we don't know who wrote or directed it then uh, I'm just trying to get there. It's, it was developed by uh, David Kajganagik. No, he's oh, got the, the most unpronounceable the, name. The guy who wrote the remake of Suspiria. Yeah, how do you say oh. that? Kajanik? Should we just say Kajanik? David Kajanik. Right. Yeah, and it's a fictional account, fictionalised account of Captain Sir John Franklin's lost expedition to the Arctic. Right. Is okay. what it is. <laughs> 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 but the second, and the, but the second season is a totally different team. It's George Takai, um, Naoko Mori, a Japanese internment camp. So it uh-huh. literally has nothing to do with 1840s Victorian co- colonial types going off uh-huh. and being all arrogant and full of hubris in the Arctic. Yeah, and then paying for it horribly. Oh God! I mean, have you, how many? How much have you seen? I've only seen the first episode, but you know, it's already. It's... Uh, I've got. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing. It really is, just wow. uh, really quite grim, though. Like, really quite grim. 
but in a brilliantly watchable way. Yeah. Recommendation well taken, Ian. We, we all need as much streaming entertainment as we can get. Um, Kirsty, how about you this week? Well, I, I initially didn't have a recommendation because I've been doing a lot of work this week. I did get sucked into uh, Murder Among the Mormons um, oh, on Netflix. Oh, yeah. I watched uh, that <laughs> Which was I, mean, I was hoping for sort of more salacious stuff about Mormons, but it wasn't really that. But yeah. it was, you know, kind of uh, intriguing um, with a, you know, kind of psychopath at the heart, heart of it. But um, watching yeah. uh, the first episode of The Terror, though, reminded me of a podcast that I um, enjoyed um, at the latter end of last year um, called uh, The White Vault. Um, which is a kind of found footage um, fiction podcast about a kind of repair team sent to a um, research outpost in Svalbard. Um, And yeah, and, you know, obviously they do their repairs and then they await, you know, or the ability to leave because of the weather. And then they're generally just not able to do that. And then weird things start happening in a kind of, thingy type way um lovecraftian type thing um yeah so it's all it's all very you know kind of very atmospheric and very cold and and yeah just yeah it was very good sounds great what was the title of that it's called the white vault there are four seasons the first two are the ones set in um in (laughs) similar similar, um uh yeah kind of arctic setting Right, okay, cool. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, I don't really have any recommendations this week because I've mainly been listening to Haunted and <laughs> Fantasy Poltergeist. I'm still watching The Strain, but that was my recommendation last week. I'm still enjoying that. Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll be checking out The Terror if I've got time. Um, but, but who knows? Um, so much stuff to stream and mm. watch TV and I can, it's far too easy for me to fall into the, the rabbit hole of three or four episodes a day while I'm doing exercises. Um, hey dear, so I'm going to try That's and... a lot of resist. exercise, Dan. <laughs> <coughs> I have a lot of sciatica. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, so... Say TV has the opposite effect on me. That's putting a, putting a plate of buttered toast on my belly (laughs) (laughs) that's what happens when i watch tv that'd be delightful right so on that note that's the end of this week's episode again we'll be back next week again we don't know what it's going to be about you'll find out in the meantime if you still haven't go and listen to the battersea poltergeist it's a very worthwhile investment and it's still running through all our heads right now i'm sure donald commands it yeah. <laughs> oh dear! Piss off, Donald. Oh, it's Christopher. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> you have been listening to, and now the podcast starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Waro, T.D. Velasquez, Stella Gaynor, Ian Winterton, and Howard Whittock, with special guest Danny Robin. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. 
No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter, at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast. And now the podcast stops.